past your discomfort with an individual who's awkward or let's admit it, maybe even a little weird in some ways. So weird that some people might be inclined to avoid them, but you are still there loving them and affirming them. It's the service that we think is hard and we don't want to be bothered with and that we struggle to do joyfully. We might do it, but we don't struggle to do it joyfully. I think God wants to dig deep. It can be discouraging. It can feel unrewarding. And it can be frustrating because we had a completely different type of service in mind. Yeah, God, this is what I believe you call me to. Unglamorous ministry demands that we die to ourselves. But we must always be mindful that there are many more unsung ways to serve, exponentially many more than those that involve public ministry. Now, sometimes ministry simply involves taking life one step at a time with somebody else. There are times when we're like the apostles. The apostles had what one writer called status anxiety. Have you ever heard that phrase? I never heard it, but I, came up, I heard it in a book that I just read. I'll met, mention that here in a second ago. How about the scene in the upper room the night before Jesus died? Luke tells us in chapter 22 that a dispute arose among them, the apostles, as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, in Luke's account, it's so interesting because this dispute came right after Jesus had told him that my blood is the blood of the new covenant. This is a place where they should have been experiencing the most significant spiritual experience of their lives. And here they are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Apparently, they struggled with their self-esteem. And what did Jesus do? He turned it around 180 degrees, continuing with verse 25. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you, Jesus said. I am among you as the one who serves. Be as the youngest. Be as the most humble, Jesus said. Be as the one who serves. You be the selfless one, Jesus said. The word status comes from the Latin word statum or standing. It refers to a person's position in a particular social grouping or maybe in society more generally. Isn't it interesting that on some social media platforms, most of which are designed to be all about me, that when you post something, it's referred to as a status update? I thought that was kind of interesting. One writer wrote, we are afflicted by a congenital uncertainty as to our own value, as a result of which our sense of identity is held captive by the judgments of those we live among. We see another set of disciples in the New Testament who also had a problem with their status at one point. They, too, suffered from what we might call status anxiety. John the Baptist was a pretty big deal when he first came along, at least before Jesus came along. He was the one that people were going to see. He was the one baptizing people, and he had his group of followers And when Jesus came along and started baptizing people too, well, John's disciples, well, they were a little bit worried at best and maybe a little bit jealous 
at worst. Was Jesus a threat to their place as disciples of John? Was John about to become a has-been? We read in John chapter 3, verse 25 through 26, starting, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So the disciples were just talking about something completely different. And then they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, of course referring to Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. And here we get it. Here we get at the root of it. And all are going to him. Of course, they're talking about Jesus here. They say, and look, he, Jesus, he's baptizing just like you were. This was your idea. You did it first, right? And what's worse, everybody's going to him. It's implying that they're not coming to us anymore. This is about honor and status and importance. Jesus is becoming a bigger deal. And they're yesterday's news. And John's followers don't like that feeling at all. Can we relate to that, any of us? Now, in our self-esteem culture, we would tell John's disciples that they should decide their importance for themselves. They need to learn to love themselves and stop worrying about what other people think. And in much of our Christian culture, we might tell them something similar. I read a great book. This is a a book I referenced a moment ago that addresses this whole idea of self-esteem. It's called Ego Trip, Rediscovering Grace in a Culture of Self-Esteem. And this writer, discovering how our Christian response is too often very much like our culture's response in such situations, says Christians may say to the disciples of John something like this, Jesus, remember, wouldn't die for junk. So you just need to love and honor yourself as he loves and respects you. But then this writer recognizes something important. It's hard to decide your significance for yourself. We need a sense of significance that comes from beyond ourselves. That is why the Bible teaches that in order to flourish as God intends, we need to learn how to stop judging ourselves, accept our biblical status, and live lives motivated by something greater than the pursuit of our own worth. And that is the point that John is about to make so powerfully. So we'll look at this here in just a second how John responds. In verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Apart from Christ, John knew this, we possess nothing, not material things, not status, not ministry. Don Carson reminds us that God's sovereignty includes the call to specific roles and stations in life for all of us. For all of us. So for John the Baptist to have wished that he were someone else, called to serve in a way many would judge more prominent, he would be annulling the very excellent ministry that God had given him. So God calls each of us to a different status, each of us to a different role. But when we're in Christ, there's something more important about our individual status that applies to all of us. And we referenced this just a moment ago. We are all part of something bigger than ourselves. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him and his glory. So John's disciples and each of us here this morning who are in Christ are not in ourselves, in and of ourselves. We are not. I am not the center of God's purpose. Now, I may be at 
the center. Do you get that fine distinction? I am not the center of God's purpose, but I may be at the center of His purpose, but I'm not that in myself. God's purpose is to bring glory to His Son, and that should be our purpose as His followers as well, even as it was of John's disciples, as something bigger than us. And this knowledge really is designed to be freeing to us. It's not meant to constrain us. It's meant to free us. Freeing in that we don't have to worry about our status. We don't have to worry about our self-esteem. We don't have to worry about how important we are. Because for those of us who are in Christ, we are loved and redeemed by Him. And that needs to be enough, folks. That needs to be enough. Then John used the example of a wedding as we continue looking at this passage. The best man is the best man. The best man isn't the groom. Everybody involved in a wedding works together to serve a greater purpose. From the best man to the maid of honor and bridesmaids to the chauffeur who drives the limo to the minister who does the service. Their job is to facilitate the bride and groom getting hitched. That's their job. And of course, John's response in verses 29 and 30 also serve a higher purpose, pointing to a greater reality too. This is John chapter 3, verses 29 and 30. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And then this great phrase that we should all repeat, we should all remember, John 29, 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. John knew, Paul knew, we need to know that God doesn't love us because we are worthy. Let me say that again. God does not love us because we are worthy of His love. He loves us, but we are counted as worthy when we are in Christ. Because He loves us, and because He paid the penalty for our sin, we are counted as worthy when we are in Christ. Because of what Christ has done, not because of anything that we have done. It's a subtle difference, but it's a very important difference. It's important because it helps us to understand that the way we need to respond to God's love for us is different than the world would think. When we think that God loves us because we're worth it, okay? And that's the whole self-esteem culture. We're worth it. We're worth it. When we think that God loves us because we're worth it, the danger is this will turn into death by selfie rather than death to self. Because, why? We might be prone to think, well, if God loves me so much, then, hey, that must mean I'm pretty important. Getting this idea that God loves us just because he loves us and not because of any worthiness on our part leads to a totally different response to God. When we understand this, when we really get this, we're amazed by his grace and not by ourselves. You see that? You understand that? If I think I'm worthy, then I think, well, of course he loves me because I'm worthy. But when I see my absolute unworthiness... I can understand that I am saved by grace and I am amazed by that. And I'm not amazed by anything in me. This is an outward-looking response, not an inner self-absorbed 
response. It's a big difference, folks. Think about Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she received the news of her favor with God to be the bearer of the Savior. What was her response? Her first response was perplexity. How can this be, right? And then, after that, she is awestruck by God's goodness and his greatness and his grace. And what does it result in? It results in worship. It results in worship. Mary worships God. Let it be with us, too. Let that be our response to God's grace at work in our lives. May we respond to God's favor, to his love and mercy in our lives with gratitude, with gratitude that leads to worship. So the idea is not to think less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for how it stands in such clear opposition to the way the world thinks. But, Father, because we swim in the world, it's easy for us to get caught up in this idea that we are to esteem ourselves because of some inherent value in and of ourselves. But, Father, we just want to come to learn to accept that you love us because you love us. And may that truly seem like amazing grace to us, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Father, we're grateful for these truths, and we pray that you would help us not to have a spiritual death by selfie, Lord, but, Father, that we would truly die to self. We would die to our own self-interests, and, Father, we would consider others as more important than us. And, Lord, that that would be the hallmark of our lives as we serve you, Lord and follow you, and as you mold us more and more into the image and likeness of the one who set the supreme example, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Bill, for that message.